Tonight I'd like to begin by offering, by helping us make some cursory observations about this great cloud of witnesses mentioned in Hebrews 11. Then we will consider why their witness matters and close by exploring a little bit, briefly, about how we might live in light of their testimony. But first, let us consider a very simple question. What is a witness? The Greek word here is actually martus, martyr, martyr. The word simply means someone who tells of what he or she has seen. A witness is one who has observed something and can tell of it from first-hand experience. We are perhaps most familiar with this as a legal term. A witness is capable of truly testifying about something that they have intimate knowledge of. The author of Hebrews here reminds us, reminds his readers actually, that they have been surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. There are many who have gone before them in the faith who bear a collective witness. Here at Faith Vancouver, you have some folks, gray-haired folks, who have gone ahead of you in the faith in ways that are real and rich and true. And just as they might know and have some perspective on the life of faith, so too the author of Hebrews reminds his readers and us vicariously that there is a great cloud of witnesses, many, many persons who have gone before us in faith who have a testimony that's significant. And so we do well to heed their testimony. What is the testimony of this great cloud of witnesses? Let's make some observations from Hebrews 11. You can open up and follow along with me. Now, there's a lot in this chapter, so we're not going to make every observation that we could possibly make. We'll make a couple cursory observations. First observation, there are some specific names here. Real persons who comprise this witness. We likely recognize some of these names. Noah, Abraham and Sarah, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Samson, David, Samuel. Their stories are significant in the overarching biblical narrative. And there are some less famous names here too. Abel and Enoch, Barak, Jephthah. Maybe some surprises in there. These names may be a little less significant to us, but the original audience of the book of Hebrews would know their stories quite well. You see, the author of Hebrews is writing to Jewish believers. And in the first ten chapters of this epistle, has been making appeals to them through Old Testament categories, communicating who Jesus really is. He spends 10 chapters communicating Jesus in relationship to the angels and in relationship to Moses and in relationship to the high priesthood and in relationship to Melchizedek and in relationship to the sacrificial system so that his audience might rightly understand Jesus' paramount significance in God's redemptive work on behalf of mankind. Here the author invites his readers to take a careful look 
at the lives and testimonies of these particular forefathers in the faith, which leads us to our second observation. Did anybody notice the repeated words? By faith, by faith, by faith. Mentioned 22 times in 40 verses. We would be remiss to ignore this. By faith. Each of these individuals took God at his word. They listened to God. And they lived as if God would do what he said he would do. Their faith was not just cognitive concession. No, their faith was alive and active. Abel honored God with his sacrifice. Noah heeded God's warning of an impending flood. Abraham followed God's lead, even when he was asked to do crazy things. Moses embraced his, his identity as a child of Abraham and a child of that promise and took seriously God's calling upon him to lead Israel. These people not only believed in their minds that God existed, but they acted in faith that he would reward them as they diligently followed him. Which brings us to a very interesting third observation from Hebrews 11. Sometimes these believers experienced victory and deliverance and blessing in their lives, and other times they did not. Let me repeat that so we don't miss it. Sometimes these faith-filled men and women experienced victory and deliverance and blessing, but many other times they did not experience victory or deliverance or blessing in this life. And that's okay because of the last observation that we want to make. There are many more observations, but we're going to focus on these. The last observation that we must not miss is that there were and still are glorious rewards for these people because of their faith. What is the witness here in Hebrews chapter 11? Is it not that the Lord God, the one true God, saw and rewarded their faith? Their witness in this chapter and echoed throughout the rest of Scripture is that these people of faith are commended, they are deemed right with God, by God, and they are destined to receive the city whose builder and architect is God. We see this throughout Hebrews 11, but particularly in verses 13 to 17. They may have died in faith. They were willing to accept that. They knew they were strangers and exiles here on this side. They desired a better country. The city 
whose designer, whose builder was God. They sought God's kingdom, and because of their faith, verse 17, or sorry, verse 16, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. One of the interesting things we see here in this passage is that resurrection was these people's reality. You may have heard the phrase, they, lost, they may have lost the battle, but they won the war. The saints of old, those who walked by faith, lost many battles. But by faith, they won the war. This is their witness. They placed their faith and hope in the living God, and God was not ashamed to be called their God, and he has prepared a city for them. Hindsight is twenty twenty. The author of Hebrews wants his readers to see with eyes of faith that Abel's faith and Enoch's faith, Noah's faith and Abraham's faith and Moses' faith and the long list that we don't have time to recall. Their faith was seen by God and rewarded by God and is still rewarded by God. The Hebrew readers, they know this to be true. In fact, they are living, breathing examples of God's promises being fulfilled. Think about it. They live on this side of God's promise to Abraham as Abraham's children. They live on this side of the exodus into the promised land. They live on this side of the finished work and resurrection and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. For ten chapters, the author of Hebrews reminded his readers that the redemptive promises of God have come to fruition in Christ. Death is dead. The city of the living God has come in Christ. God, in the person and work of Jesus, has defeated sin and death once for all. And so, yes, the testimony from this cloud of witnesses is a living one, not just in the posterity of this, this document. They are still alive. Living with God in His city by faith in Christ. That's their witness. By faith, Death is not the end, regardless of the trials and tribulations we face in this life. A good question to ask, though, is does this witness matter? Or is this just nice religious sentiment, the opium of the masses? Does this matter at all? I mean, it's a nice testimony, it sounds good, but let's get real. We live in a world in which there are a great many other witnesses. And let's be honest, many of their testimonies sound enticing. 
There are a lot of other perspectives, other testimonies, other witnesses. Witnesses in our culture, witnesses in the media we consume, witnesses even in our families, our workplaces, our friendships. People tell us all the time what is of value and what is not. Let's play a brief game. Let's explore some other witnesses and their testimonies just to see what our options are. See if you can guess who I'm quoting. First witness. This one sounds good. I kind of like this one. It's attractive to me. Follow your own path no matter what people say. Yeah. I'll take that. Karl Marx. Second witness. It isn't truth that matters, but victory. It isn't truth that matters, just victory. Adolf Hitler. Third witness. This one's fascinating. A man of science ought to have no wishes and no affections. He must have merely a heart of stone. Charles Darwin. Fourth witness. Love and work, work and love, that's all that there is. Sigmund Freud. There are many other witnesses, oh yes. And they speak to us at every turn. Often through people we care about. These other testimonies are subtle, attractive, even convincing. Effectively communicating, trust not in Christ, for God is dead. Nietzsche has reminded us of that. Trust your heart. Trust your feelings. Trust the experts. Trust the science. Trust your government. Trust the mob, the majority. I mean, after all, if everybody is running off the cliff, there must be something good at the bottom of that cliff. Who should we listen to? Which, witnesses, which witness will we believe? Will we trust? Will you trust? Let me offer an illustration to help us understand what may be at stake here. When I lived in North Carolina, I worked at a Christian summer camp, and we had an exec, a director who would kind of teach about the gospel. And one night, about 80 of us staff getting ready for the camp season, we were having a devotion, and he was talking about faith. And he did an interesting thing which surprised me. He invited four of the young men to come up on stage for an illustration. And he told them, take off your shirts. Now, two of the brothers were really excited about this because they were cut. They looked good. So, you know, they could, they're, they're going to show off. There are a lot of ladies on staff, and they were, you know, happy to communicate what they had to offer physically. But the other two brothers, they, they weren't so excited. So, and so, with a lot of pressure, and I felt uncomfortable, I was just glad I wasn't one of the guys who got asked. Um, the other two brothers, they all took off their shirts. So two of the guys, they're covering up. He said, okay, now, we're going to have a swimming race. 
And you're going to bank your life on one of these brothers. You have to pick who you think is going to win. Now you might be inclined to choose the guys who are cut, who are physical specimens. They look athletic. They look like they probably could win a swimming race. But it'd be nice to know a little bit about who you're banking your life on, wouldn't it? Who are these guys? What is their skill set? What is, are they qualified? How good are they at swimming? He said, it'd be nice to know which one was best qualified to save your life. He said, what you guys don't know is one of these gentlemen was a competitive swimmer, and the other three, they can't hardly swim at all, so it'd be nice to know which one was qualified, wouldn't it? And then he said, and what's interesting is, you can believe all day that the guy you've banked on is going to win. But your faith, the amount of faith you have and what you've banked on, that doesn't matter either, does it? Your faith finds value, finds value in its object. It's an interesting illustration. It stuck with me, not only because it was really awkward, but because it's a good illustration of the life of faith. This is the world that we live in. Blaise Pascal famously recognized this. You have to wager. It isn't up to you. You are already committed. You have to wager. You cannot not bet your life on something. And so the question then becomes, who are you placing your faith and confidence in? Who or what are you trusting? Secular humanism? Hedonism? Conservative political policies? Your bank account? Are your hopes in Marxist governments ushering in some utopia or scientific breakthroughs to extend your life indefinitely? Are you trusting in your own capacity to tip the karmic scale in your favor? And remember, it's not the amount of faith you have, it's the authenticity and capability of the object of your faith that matters. You can believe all day and what you've placed your faith and hope in. But if it doesn't have the capacity to bring you home and give you a whole restored life, ah, you've wagered poorly. Who or what are you trusting in? Brothers and sisters, we have been surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. And they remind us that wagering upon the living God by faith in His salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ, is a 100% guarantee return on investment. There is, no more, there is no wiser or more predictable wager. Those who have gone all in on the living God and His Savior Jesus Christ have never regretted it. So don't hedge your bets. There is no hedging of bets. That's an illusion. You are either trusting in Christ or playing games. 
these people's testimony is that if you want God's kingdom, if you are seeking a better country, bank on Jesus. Trust in Him. He will not disappoint you. How precisely can we do this, though? How can we live by faith in response to this great cloud of witnesses? That's a big question, and there's lots of answers, and it's very nuanced, and praise God we have this whole of Scripture to teach us how to do this. I'm simply going to focus on three exhortations we have in this passage. First exhortation, lay aside every hindrance. Let go of the things that don't matter. For some of you, that might be your iPad. Lay aside every hindrance, particularly the sin that so easily ensnares us. Second, run the race set before you with endurance, with steadfastness. Don't stop. Regardless of whatever obstacles lie in your way, just like the saints of old, keep moving. Move forward, regardless of what gets in your way, regardless of the victories, regardless of the difficulties. And third, keep your eyes on Jesus. The first way, lay aside everything that would keep you from following Jesus. Put away sin. It only steals, it only kills, it only destroys anyway. Confess your sin. Mortify it. Let it go. Let it die. Do whatever you got to do to put off that old man. Praise God, we can be a grace place. Get it all out there. Get rid of it. As John Owen said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Put away sin so that you might be free to follow Christ. Second, run the race set before you with steadfastness. Don't worry about other people's races. Run yours. Run the race God has laid out before you. Comparison ends up becoming a big problem. Each of us will face our own certain trials. Each of us will experience our own certain blessings. Enjoy the victories, but don't become too enamored with them. There is a better country awaiting at the end of your race. And don't get bogged down by the trials and tribulations. And I don't mean don't grieve. Don't get bogged down by the trials and tribulations. Weep and grieve, but not as one who is without hope. The Lord is preparing a city for those who have placed their faith and hope in Him. And lastly, keep your eyes on the prize. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Don't lose sight of the author and perfecter of our faith. Worship and pray and listen to Him through His Word. Partake of His life in the Lord's Supper. Enjoy life and fellowship with others who are running their race. Fix your eyes on Jesus. He's our Savior. He's the one who's going to take us home. He will carry those who believe to His celestial city. 
He sits at the right hand of God, possessing more authority than any angel. He is the one who will deliver us from, from the, in the ultimate exodus into God's promised land, a prophet greater than Moses. He is the priest king in the order of Melchizedek who will rule and reign forever, and he is our high priest. A once and for all atoning sacrifice who ever lives to make intercession for us. Yes, Jesus is on our side. Those of faith, Jesus is on their side. He takes joy in bringing us home. Let me remind you, it was His joy in redeeming all things, including, including you and I, that led Him to lay down His life. He has never lost one of His sheep who has placed their faith and hope in Him, this is the testimony of the great cloud of witnesses. Wager on Jesus. He has purchased with his precious blood for all who believe, on, believe upon him a kingdom that will not be shaken. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the testimony of the saints who have gone before us. And when we get really honest, we are very much distracted and tempted by the cares of this world. And we thank you that you know our frame. And Lord, you know where it's hard for us to run our race and it's hard for us to endure. And you know where sin entangles us. And you know where our eyes get sideways and distracted. And so we ask for your mercy. Holy Spirit, do what you alone can do. Help us find the courage and grace to let go of those things that are not of eternal value, including our sin. Lord, help us stay steadfast when we get worn out and discouraged. And Lord, help us fix our eyes on you. You are so good. You are so beautiful. You are so faithful. Jesus, lead us home. Have mercy on us for your glory's sake. Amen. Now, I don't